Hey, welcome to The Screenwriting Life. I'm Meg LaFove. And I'm Lorianne McKenna. We are professional screenwriters. We've worked together as a team and separately. We've worked on studio and indie films, live action and animation, from my work on Inside Out and Captain Marvel. To my work in Pixar's story department on Up, Brave, and Inside Out. We are here to share our insights on the craft of screenwriting and also the life. How to not only survive the ups and downs, but thrive. We want to help you become the best screenwriter you can be and to reassure you that you are not alone on this journey. What is up, TSL family? Producer Jeff here coming to you from the basement of my wife's house in Carmel, Indiana. And um, this week we have a special show for you. Actually, I want to say uh, extra special thanks to Jess Fisher, who put this episode together. It's all about creating wants, desires, and agency in our characters. And Like we do with these kind of special hits episodes, we got some of our favorite moments from some of our best guests on the show. Of course, I say some of our best guests, but I kind of think like every guest that comes on our show is one of our best guests because we have such a such a good track record of amazing people on the show. But these are some clips that will help inspire um, drive and motivation and dimension and agency in your characters. So I think it's another instant TSL classic. Thank you so much to Jess for your hard work putting this episode together. And if you want more on who is particularly speaking in each of these clips, it is in the episode description below. So make sure you check that out. And I also just want to say a very um, happy holiday to everyone who's listening right now. Um, I'm hoping that all of you are, you know, with people you love, but the truth is probably some of you aren't. I know the holidays can either be a time filled with love and warmth, or for some people, they can be particularly lonely if you don't feel like you have a community around you. Um, so just know that you are not alone. Um, we are here. Your TSL family is here. And um, if you haven't logged on the Facebook group, that's a great, great way to find others who are embarking on the journey of uh, the beautiful and sometimes terrifying journey of being a creative. So make sure you join the Facebook group there, particularly if you're having a rough holiday. Um, but just know that we see you and we love you. And um, without further ado, let's get into the show. You know, I talk a lot about sometimes the best writing comes from what makes you feel like you're going into lava. Like it's just... Mm-hmm it's painful. It makes you feel vulnerable and that you got to work right towards that, not away from it. Um, sure. mm-hmm. So d- did you find that at all? Did you have any kind of cathartic experience on soul? I'm, again, no spoilers, of course. I mean, is it something that you felt you, you, you needed to do on soul? Well, um, I think it's worth mentioning people. People will, people may will, will know the moment I'm talking about in soul, but there was a, there was a moment during the writing of soul that my father was passing away. And so I would, fly out of um, the Bay Area and back into Texas just to be with him every chance I could because I knew that time was short. And so it it took a little, it took months, right? And so I would fly in, I would be with him, I would fly back out and I would fly back out with all this stuff, right? And um, then the last time I was with him, I sat down with him. He wasn't communicative. It was his last moments and I held his hand. It was just me and him in the room. And um, I watched him pass away. He kind of passed away in my arms. And, uh, but during this time, I'm thinking like, what is he thinking about right now? What, what is he, what are the last thoughts of, that are going through his head? Is it about his career success or lack of career success? Is it about um, all the things he wished that he did in his life? Or is he hopefully really loving the time that his son is with him right now? And it's holding his hand as he passes away. And I then kind of turned that around on myself. And I said, you know, that, this career success, um, success of soul, my career at Pixar, none of that matters right now. This is the most important thing in my life right now. And I loved that moment. It was, 
it, it was, there was a moment like no other in, in the lava for me is watching a human being pass away that you love. And so I took that back and um, I didn't do anything with it for a while. I don't think I told anybody that my father passed away, but we were at a moment in the movie where we needed Joe to have an epiphany that we needed Joe to, um, to finally understand what it's about. <laughs> I'm kind of trying to like skirt right. the, skirt the thing, but, um, and I wrote it and I just fucking loved it and it hurt and I cried writing it and I sent it in and, um, I, and, uh, it's in the movie mm-hmm. and, um, I, uh, I, I kind of, I'm kind of one of those weird people. I think sometimes that, um, I, I kind of don't like the pain, but I do like the pain. <laughs> I think we're all, my wife says like, you are an ambulance chaser and it's kind of true. Like I, I, I will go for that drama. And if I'm crying in it and feeling emotional in it, like it's not great. Sure. But I, I, it's, it's not the end of the world for me either because it's kind of life, you know? And I just, I feel, I feel really alive sometimes in those really emotional moments. And so that was definitely it. And, um, you know, that the, the scene didn't change. I mean, the little aspects of that moment changed, but um, the scene stayed. Mike, thanks so much for sharing that. That was amazing. Thanks so much for um, giving that insight. And it was really very profound. Thank you so much. I think it takes a point of view that views the piece itself as fluid at all times and morphing at all times. And I often think of any iteration of an outline, a script, a draft, something up on a board, post-it notes, as simply snapshots of something that is moving through time and space. And the more I can keep my brain like asking that question, which is, what is it now? What is it now? What is it now? Like all day, every day, what is it now? And if it's this, that means this. And not getting so precious because you know how it is. You got to like, <laughs> you got to have faith that if you're in this for the long haul, one word, one phrase, one sentence, one scene, one script, unfortunately. doesn't mean you don't work your ass off on making this the best it can be, but it's all part of a long flow. And these things aren't like, I don't personally believe in the, whatever is it? The Aristotelian idea. I, I don't know. Like where you chip away, you just chip away. It, it exists and you're just chipping away everything. That's not it. I don't buy that. I believe that it's an infinite set of possibilities and you're making choices and you can go this way or that way. And if you go that way, it means this. And if you go, whatever, just like your character. Because even getting some emerging writers to understand that, that the characters by their choices is creating the storyline. It's not the story exists and they're just moving through it. They made a choice and therefore the story went that direction, which sounds so simple. And yet even I sometimes catch myself as a writer not doing that, not really giving all of that to the main character to create all of that power in their behavior and choices. Well, then now's where the chess game gets three-dimensional and I think it gets like nine-dimensional ultimately or maybe infinitely dimensional which is then it becomes not about you creating an outline that your character follows goes through or your plot or whatever you want to call it but rather your character is rich enough 
that they can surprise you. And then when they surprise you, you have the dexterity to go, wait, what is this telling me? Mm-hmm. And step back as the so-called controlling God or whatever you want to call it and go, wait, now what is my new world here? And then step back into the character. And it's that dance in a weird way. It's that collaboration between you and your story and you and your characters. And to me, that's the next level of thinking, which is, oh, this isn't about me coming up with a story and then making characters go through it. It's me assessing at the deepest, most organic level, what is the story becoming? And like Lauren, you were talking about how, you know, parenting, it's parenting. It's like, I thought when I had a kid, my first kid, I had two kids and I thought I have two kids when I thought (laughs) I'm going to have a child. And when we found out it's going to be a boy, I said, my boy is going to be, I felt like I'm about to sing a song from Oklahoma, (laughs) but my my boy is going to be this way. And parenting is going to be this. And he's going to be like this. And then Uh out of the Uh room. (laughs) And he looked at me and everything went out the window. Uh Suddenly my job was not to go. This is the direction I'm taking you in son. It was, Oh, I see. There are parts of him that are part of me. And I feel sorry for him for that. (laughs) Many times in life, this is going to be your life work, getting rid of that part, (laughs) understanding that part. But as it pertains to this, your job as a parent quickly, you realize, becomes not trying to shoehorn a kid into some (laughs) trajectory, but rather how do you guide this person that is of you and with you, but into the the best manifestation of what they can be. And they tell you that. And then when I had a second kid, oh, was I wrong about all my thoughts about what it means to be a parent? Because (laughs) guess what? It applies entirely differently to the other child because your job is not to parent them the same way you parent this. It's the same with your projects. Like you get a new project and it's like, well, everybody's like, well, you're a pro and you're getting paid. So isn't it easy? And it's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) It's a brand new thing. Like, I I love Ed that you're doing a musical, but I'm sure part of your brain is like, Ed, a musical. Now we have to learn a whole new thing. It's with every script, every script. Do you do have this where you go, wait, it's not just how do I write this script? It's, Wait, how do you write? Right? Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. literally every time. So wait a minute, wait a minute. What do I do when I write something? Like how? And actually, I don't mind that mindset. I like that mindset because it forces me not to go, but what I do is now I start the outline of it or now I break this part and now I break that part. Everyone is different. Everyone's different. Everyone's Every different. part of everyone is different. Like you start with, or at least for me, I start, I'll start down a path with it. I'll start outlining. Then I'll go, it isn't working for me to do this anymore. Now I'm going to talk it about, about it. And now I'm going to put it up on a board. Or actually this part doesn't want to be as detailed. Or it's the strangest thing. Everyone yeah. is different. I mean, one of the big things I think you guys talk so much about thematic with respect to sort of like finding it inside yourself and finding your lava and all that beautiful stuff. But the other thing that I noticed some some rookies uh, just are having trouble mastering. So I just wanted to point out two movies that are recent just to maybe help, which is when you can also um, 
thematically express the story through many points of view, but it's under the umbrella of one theme is to me when the project is the most successful, right? So in the last year and a half, um, One Night in Miami to me is one of the best examples. And I know you just had uh, the writer on, but it, honestly, like it's the big theme is there, but each each character in that has their own take on it. So it's a really lovely way to have facets and depth to what is the bigger theme that you're exploring. And then also for me, one of my favorite movies from the last couple of years is Lady Bird. And, you know, she's desperate to get out of that house and her, her best friend, her mom, and everyone's, you know, doubtful whether she can pull it off or not. And I, I really appreciated that we got many points of view all within one beautiful theme wrangled. So I think as a, as a young writer, the, the more you can work on, on making your story that cohesive to me is, is a beautiful thing. And I think that actually holds true in, in TV too, right? Like there's usually a, a theme for the show yeah, that all the characters in that show are really traveling on in very different ways, potentially, but they're all struggling with um, ambition or they're all yeah. struggling with, you know, and again, seasonally that can change or, you know, it can move because it's a TV show, but those TV shows do tend to, you know, I'm watching the most cheesy show ever, which I love crash landing on you from Korea. And it's like cheese fest galore. Like literally every time they're together, it rains or snows because that's romantic. Um, and I love it. But even <laughs> this show, which is, it's so successful, I think a, because the actors are so amazing. They're like Cary Grant and, and Kate Hepburn. But all, I think the show does have this deeper why. It does have this deeper theme that you can actually see being carried out in all these many, many characters. Um, and I was like, oh my God, there it is. So I just, I, I think that happens in TV too. Do you agree? Do you think TV is is also doing that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I would say 100%. In fact, like if you look at how really strong TV shows are built, that's that's to me the fulcrum by which they operate. I feel like, you know, they figure out what that sort of unanswerable question is, which is the the big thing that's driving the show. But then within that, it is, what are we exploring, right? What are we gonna unpack every week? So I would say 100%, that's exactly what's happening. We're talking, I mean, you're such a master of working kind of within what we would call genre. And of course, everything is genre, right? But when we're talking about, you know, ideas or properties or, tropes that are based on things we mm -hmm. sort of know and recognize and love. And I've always wondered, like, when you're diving into that, I feel like you're almost making a contract with your audience that they expect certain things to show up. So how do you, like, walk the line between giving the audience sort of those tropes that they want mm -hmm. and that you know they want, but not falling into cliche? Like, the example mm -hmm. I use is, like, you know, like, the ship is going to self-destruct. Like, we sort of know that that's going to happen in, like, a space opera type of film, and we almost mm -hmm. want to see it, but we want right. to see it in a way that feels fresh. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that question makes sense or not, but I'd love to hear you speak on it. You know, it's interesting. Um, you think of the Star Wars prequel trilogy, right? And, you know, the, 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 the first movie being very much about giving the audience, you know, that experience, uh, you know, trying to get the audience to have that old Star Wars feeling. And, you know, the second one, which is about trying to subvert all of that. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the problem with the subversion, uh, you know, especially I, th I think in, in that film um, is, is that, I, you know, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that Star Wars is the best venue to interrogate the folly of, of, uh, of entitled and overconfident masculinity, you know? Um, and I think it's not about, um, it's not about the, um, you know, sort of whether you want to subvert it, it's about 
whether the questions you're at, whether, whether you have the correct airframe to answer the questions you're asking, you know? Um, and I think that you have to be very rigorous with yourself when you look at genre material about character drama and things like that, you know, about what the characters are actually going through and what the experiences of the characters within it. Um, and I got to tell you, like, I, I, I appreciate all of these nice things you're, you're saying about me. I, but at the same time, like, I, I find myself, I think that that's the area in which I have the most to learn. Um, and it's only dawning on, well, it's not only dawning on me. I've, I've always known I was somewhat emotionally stunted, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, I've always been a plot inward writer. I've always been a guy who figured out when the ship self-destructs and then I figure out what the characters have to be and what their conflicts have to be for that cool thing to happen. And that's a perfectly valid way of writing. But ultimately, you, you, if you're going to use a trope, you need to be rigorous about the characters really having a journey, you know, because ultimately plot is tropes, character is feeling, and together, you know, to, to, it's the Bob McKee thing, you know, together they make story. Um, and, and I think, and look, I, with, for example, with Dark Crystal, right? Um, I know what I'm getting into. I'm, I'm making a high fantasy show, you know? So there's a bunch of sort of things that, that maybe, but you know, uh, if you're going to interrogate certain things, you know, it, it's, it's um, you need to be conscious of the venue and what people want from the venue and what the bandwidth is and what that airframe will support, you know? Did, did that make any damn sense? Yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Because so, the, the ship blowing up is a metaphor for the interior of the character. Mm -hmm, ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. It's the dream metaphor for the, what's happening inside. So mm -hmm. it makes complete sense. Well, it's like look, we if can't, you look at and I was going to say, we can't arrive at those moments unless we've done mm -hmm. the work, the character work to support yeah. those moments, right? Exactly. But look, the, the best ship blowing up sequence, in my experience, is the, the last act of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, right? And it's amazing how much him finally, Khan finally, you know, igniting the Genesis device to self-destruct the ship to kill Kirk and himself in the process. It is such a, you know, the movie is called The Wrath of Khan, right? So we know what his deal is. <laughs> but when you get to that point, even though the movie's called The Wrath of Khan, it's almost like, um, you know, like you're like, damn, he's, he's really angry. <laughs> you know, and it's like, this is, the, this is the end point of that level of irrational fury. And you buy it because you've been with that character all through the journey, you know? And, and I think that whether it's Kirk's character in that film or, or Khan or whatever, one of the really, and look, that, that movie's a piece of Pulp Fiction um, and it's a wonderful piece, beautifully constructed piece of Pulp Fiction. But um, what it really does is if, if you're a fan of it or if you come into it and you like those characters, you know, you're, you're watching Kirk go through his midlife crisis and you're watching Khan go through, you know, a kind of, you know, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, but he's somebody who's basically been in jail and he's sprung out and he's going to, you know, get, get his, and they both have, have arcs that end exactly where they should. Mm. Um, and it's, and it's, a, and, and, and that's the thought process you need to have going into it. When people ask me, when do I think a script is done? I always say the same thing, which is when you feel like your main character has been through a journey, they can't go back from. I, oh God, I love that. I love put that. that on a, put that on a t-shirt. Totally. <laughs> I want to go back to sex life and the female forward for a minute, because one thing I love about the show, and you did, a, you did an amazing article for talkhouse.com, which we're going to post on the Facebook page for everybody to read. Oh, cool. um, and, you know, you talk, you were talking about women desire, which the show of course has, is centered uh, or not centered, but has an aspect of sexual desire, but you know, of course it's bigger than that. It's us having wants and needs and, um, I have found, and I've talked about on the show that 
for writers, especially women, sometimes finding the want, the character to even have a want is why this story isn't working because we've been so indoctrinated that we don't even know what a want is anymore. And I would love you to talk about women, especially it goes to anybody, but women, especially wanting and how, and how that went into your show. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's so great. Um, well, I do think that, you know, Billy, our, our lead character is someone who has given up a lot of her wants, you know, she, she, she gave up her PhD program when she got married and then she gave up working at all and she had two kids and, and it seemed like the right decision. And, and, and for many people, it's absolutely the right decision, but she's, left there going like, hmm, not so sure. And, um, and also she's someone who had a, who did have a big sexual appetite and it kind of got her into a little bit of trouble. And, and then she really like put all that in a box. Like it's, you know, a big part of what we've talked about, about her upbringing, but it's, it's a societal thing that many people hear regardless of their parents, which is that women, you know, don't be a slut and, you know, lower your number of the number of guys you've had sex with and don't talk about your sexual history and, you know, be a good girl and be marriage worthy. And, you know, that like you get the, the prize then of a good husband. And, you know, it's also been interesting to see the reaction from many viewers who are very kind of angry at Billy for not just being satisfied with what she has, you know, because she has a rich husband, not just a nice husband, but a rich husband and two healthy children. And sure that husband, like she's kind of become invisible to him (laughs) and he, you know, pays more attention to the baby than her and watches TV over her, her shoulder during sex. But, but still look at that house, look at that cute man, look at those kids, like that should be enough. And so you know, women don't really talk about like that. That was really interesting to hear from women who say like, I've felt like this. I've felt like, where did this other girl go that I used to be? And who am I now? But I have been too scared to say it out loud because I didn't want to sound ungrateful. And so like, and it's true. It's like, and, and what we're trying to say is like, it is possible to be incredibly grateful for all of the blessings that you have and to still want more. And that can be to be wanting to be a writer, right? Like some emerging writer women are being told, well, you have a good job. You know, why do you want to do this writing thing? And then it can bleed into your character so that your story isn't working. Like, have you ever, did you ever make a transition from having inactive or characters without agency to characters actually wanting something and driving the story? Oh, yeah. All the time, because also when you just are um, looking for straight up drama, like stuff to happen, um, that can often be reactive. It can be like, well, then I don't know, somebody dies or whatever, you know, (laughs) or or, and it's not like, oh, she makes a decision to go after what she wants. You know what I mean? Um, And I think um, it's tricky because so much of this conflict for women is internal. You know, it's like, it's an identity question, you know, and so it's a question of like, how do you um, dramatize that, you know, because you do, even if you have voiceover, you know, as, as we do in the show, like, you know, that shouldn't be the only thing, (laughs) you know what I mean? Um, But I think that, um, 
you know, and it's not just dramatizing having wants, but it's also dramatizing the um, obstacle of other people not thinking that you should have those wants. You know what I mean? Like, how does that, you know, let's just take your example of like the person who has a very, like, and this is, I think everyone who has parents who, you know, who's, who's, who, whose parents are like, Oh my God, you're trying for a career in Hollywood. Like, why are you doing that? You you got a good degree from college or whatever. You could just go work for, you know, whoever, you know, some bank or I don't know what, you know, some, some company and, and have a perfectly good life. Like, Oh, why are you doing that? And how does that manifest itself? And how do they, you know, fight against that. But I will just say, you know, it's a slow death otherwise, you know, and that's, 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 you know, it was so important to me with sex life, like, like the sort of explosive ending, which, you know, I knew like half the people would be screaming at her and saying like, this is like spoiler alert or whatever, but um, that half the people would be like, no, stay with your husband, like be happy with what you have. What are you doing? Go back. And then half the people would be like, yes, girl, go. And like living vicariously through her. And, and it was really, really important to me that it was framed in that way that she was trying to be good, trying to be good, trying to be good, trying to be good, trying to do what everybody said. And then I cannot do it anymore, you know, and men do that in stories all the time. All the time time. they had to do bad things. Yeah. But, but we are harder on women. I mean, you know, even women are harder on women, I think, and particularly mothers, my God, you're not supposed to do anything wrong. (laughs) But uh, I think that's the final frontier, honestly, mothers being, you know, following their own agency and their own wants that it freaks people out. Yeah. And I will say in that first feature that I wrote, there is a scene where a mother leaves her child. And it was a baby and she's like crazy at this moment. Right. She's, she's losing her mind in this moment when she does this, but it was like, this movie will never be made unless you change this. And she takes her baby with her crazy though. She may be, she needs to take her baby with her. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So now I'm just obsessed with trying to find some piece of art where the mother leaves her child or something. I mean, it would not be painted as like, and here's the way you should live your life. And this is right. what you should do. But I think it's just profoundly interesting. I mean, I remember, you know, like, like I would, before I was actually a mother, I would see like TV or, or film where like, maybe the mother tried, was thinking of driving off into the sunset or whatever. And I was like, how could they leave their child? Like, you know, cause this now had been ingrained in my head of like, you know, this student can never do that. And then I can remember like some stressful times and like dropping the kids off at school and then being like, oh, I could just keep driving. <laughs> Is that fantasy? Of course I never did, you know. <laughs> no, of course, yeah. but you're, cause you're I a human just, being yeah. and, you're, and it's hard and messy and we have moments of despair and we have moments of I need to keep driving but of course we don't and I what I love too about your show is and I and I sent you this email after I watched the pilot because I just think it's such a beautiful blend of aspirational and authentic and you're a you're this so hard to do man so hard to do and then playing with that by the end right of what is aspirational and just her view of things so um, I am working, yes, it's all about me, on an ensemble movie, and I'm really s- slowing it down for a moment to just go back. And it's not like I didn't watch ensemble movies in the past, but I'm 
I'm I'm bumping into some logistics of ensemble movies and wait, how does this work? <laughs> you know, kind of stuff like literally like it's a, if it's math or an engine, like wait. So I'm going back and watching movies again and, and thinking again. And so when you worked on Guardians, like there's different ensemble movies, right? Like some ensemble movies like Jumanji, it really is from multiple points of view. You meet all of them just like Breakfast Club and see all their days and how they all got into detention mm-hmm. and you set up all of their, um, you know, flaws so that when they get into their avatars, you see why they got chose that avatar because that avatar is going to teach them blah, blah, blah. But then there's Guardians, which is more of a lead in an ensemble. We only meet him really first. I mean, I guess we meet Gamora too, but really, I mean, am I wrong? He feels like a lead with ensemble around him. More more Dorothy, shall we say, Mm -hmm. of Wizard of Oz. Um, Can you tell me a little bit, (laughs) this is going to be, how do I do this? <laughs> Which is my question. That's my real honest question. Oh. But no, okay. But the real question is in creating the structure of an ensemble film with a lead, mm-hmm. was there any insights or anything you learned in doing that? Or what was the trickiest part? Or I don't know. Anything. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, with, with, uh, with guardians, there were, there were like a dozen guardians to choose from, you know, there were so many, um, there in the comics, there are a lot of, of guardians, um, and not all of them obviously were used in the first movie. So, um, a big part of it was choosing which characters and why, and, you know, how they played off each other. That was the first thing like Peter Quill, when I came onto that project. So I, I was the, um, I sort of dug it out of the slush pile at Marvel and, um, the comic, uh, the, um, the Dan Abnett, Andy Lanning comic, which was really fantastic. Um, that version of guardians, um, had Nova and had Peter Quill, but it was a different version of Peter Quill. And the, you know, the, the version from the comics is very, you know, he, he had accidentally killed a lot of people and this, you know, sort of mistaken, thing that he had done this this gambit and he was a very serious character he wasn't like a a Han Solo-esque character so so my big thing was all right you know we need a character who is light more lighthearted, more of a rogue more of a scoundrel um and uh you know this is a a group of of sort of uh, misfits who come together and so the first big thing I did was figure out who my protagonist was and then once I had a sense of who I wanted Peter Quill to be in terms of having him be a you know antiquity smuggler and have him you know be this kind of like you know, grown up kid who had like a a sort of sad vulnerability that he covered up with humor and, you know, being a goof off. Um, You know, once I had that, I was able to sort of go through the comics and say, which, which characters are going to play off of him the best for this, this team and what do they have in common? And so, um, you know, Drax has in the comics, a slightly different backstory than he does in the movie, but he also had a, a, a loss, you know, he, he lost his, his family. Um, and Quill obviously has a new family in the form of the Ravagers, but they're kind of a bad family, <laughs> but, uh, but he's looking for family too. And Rocket actually has a pretty um, dark past and, and he's been hurt badly. And so, you know, bringing him in was, was a, uh, was a choice about like, you know, this is a character who is, um, you know, foul mouthed and he's rough, rough and ready. And he, he seems like he's, he's the one who's most likely to attack you, but he's also the one that's sort of hurting the most. Mm. Um, 
and uh, and Gamora, obviously, with her family issues with Thanos and with her sister. So there's um, there is I think that was the the thing that really made me want to bring those characters in uh, rather than, uh, you know, like necessarily bringing in uh, Adam Warlock or Quasar or any of these other characters who were in the um, uh the run of Annihilation comics and all the comics that I was being exposed to uh, first off with the Guardians. So, so I would say that in terms of the ensemble element, I really started with my protagonist and, and tried to figure who would be the most supportive, who, who, were, who were different enough from him. Of course, it's different because I'm, you know, choosing characters from like an established, right. uh, you know, work of, of, of comics, but, um, but I was able to change them as I needed to, which was really a, a wonderful um, and did, so did you start knowing that each of them would have an arc or it, was it more important that Peter had his arc or, and like, were you tracking them as a group all the I way was, through and how it yeah. was shifting? I was tracking them as a group because it, it's really the origin story of a team more than an origin story of, you know, Star-Lord. Um, because honestly, Star-Lord doesn't even fully understand his, you know, superhero powers until, right. you know, until this like later on in the second movie. But um the so it was really much it was really about this team coming together it's not called you know peter quill and the guardians of the galaxy it's just guardians of the galaxy so even though he is the lead and he is the the way in he's the human so of course we're immediately going to um immediately connect with him as our as our main character uh it, it was it was sort of about this group of people who if they hadn't found each other would have been lost right. so you started with uh the main character and then the theme right? This yeah. sort of finding family and then they all are on different journeys in that same theme. Right. Exactly. And, and sort of, they all have this, this sort of source spot in their, um, in their histories, which is a very like, you know, it's a very Marvel comics thing. Shared, but I think would you say it was shared trauma? Shared trauma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, they're different forms of it, but it's, it is right. all about like, everybody wants to be loved, right? Like that's a very relatable thing. And um, these are all people who have been hurt or have had, or have lost the people who loved them. And so, um, or have been called a freak or have been, you know, forcibly altered against their will. I mean, I, I would say in terms of Groot, maybe, maybe not so much for Groot is more like a, he's more like a golden retriever, right? right, right. <laughs> like a smart golden retriever. I, sometimes I think golden retrievers are smarter than all of us, but it is, uh, it, it is a, um, it is very much a story of the of the team coming together, but in terms of picking them, like I, I, I picked them based on how they would be foils to each other, how they would play off Quill and how they would all have something that would draw them to each other. Were you concerned about uh, fans' reactions to you changing characters? Well, you know, what's funny is when I was working on it, I didn't think it was going to get made. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you I was like, permission to go. They were like, whatever. Yeah. They're like, yeah, sure. You can do that weird comic if you want like they, they were you know they didn't denigrate the comic but they were just kind of like yeah I mean you know they were still doing Iron Man 2 when I was working on on this they were shooting Iron Man 2 um and then Thor um but it was you know I worked on it for two and a half years and so during that time period I think they started to be like oh hey you know this this uh this could work and especially because Thor started to get into some of the sci-fi elements um a bit like it was magic and, and fantasy but they were they were starting to get into the stars a bit there and I think they were like oh okay this seems like the next logical place to go um so I was I was frankly pretty surprised that they were cool with 
you know, me insisting on the, the talking raccoon being in the movie. Um, my, my parents, you know, they had no idea what I was doing. Um, do they ever though? There. Do our parents yeah. know what we're doing? <laughs> yeah, but they, they, um, they were, they were apparently rehearsing their um, consolation speech to me because they thought the movie was going to bomb. Cause they're like, why would anybody want to go see a movie with a talking raccoon in it? And so, <laughs> you know, that isn't for kids, like for little kids. And so they were like totally prepared to be like, it's okay, honey. <laughs> <laughs> We're sure your next one will be good. <laughs> That's sweet in a way. Yeah. In, a yeah. Way. in terms of comedy, in terms of your writing, it's so character driven. Um, a lot of people ask us about dialogue. How do you get uh, dialogue that's authentic to a character? Um, and I think we all have different approaches to it, but what's yours? I mean, you know, Dialogue, I feel like, is one of those relatively rare writing skills, which is hard to teach. You know, you can kind of give someone a breakdown of how you structure a story and so forth if they haven't done it before. But dialogue, I'm not me, me and Jesse, when we started writing sitcoms, our storytelling skills improved enormously. I'm not sure our dialogue did. I think it was what it was because somehow having an ear for dialogue or not is one of those things that might just be called a lucky break or talent or whatever. I think that certainly when you're writing a sitcom, it is dialogue is everything. And there's this old adage that you should be able to cover up the names of the characters on the script and still know who they are. And that's very true. I think that you need to be able to really identify very sharply the differences between characters, especially ensemble show, obviously, but even a smaller cast, it has to be very precise. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's about figuring out a worldview for that character, which you can boil down into something quite easy to, to remember and imagine, you know? Could you give an example of that? If you have one off the top of your head, like a worldview for a character that you created and then went on to live? Well, I mean, I guess in Peep Show, which I did for 12 years, that show, you know, one is an anxious introvert, one is an overconfident extrovert. Mm. And so, you know, in every situation, you can have those two perspectives which are completely different on the same problem. And that just as a gift that keeps on giving. And I think because we all have those voices within us, um, probably more anxious introverts in the world than, than uh, extrovert, overconfident, but we all have those those two sides to us. I think it's just... It was a really simple way for us to think about every single story and scene. Which would help with the dialogue too, right? Like how does that person talk? Have you ever derived a character or how someone speaks from someone you know, or is it more really coming from inside of you and the, the kind of almost pieces of you? We had another writer on here, Kemp Power, that said, you know, really those characters were pieces of himself having an argument about something. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I feel like... That is, you know, one of the great things about writing is that you can invest fully in completely contradictory points of view and feel they're both right. And that, you know, you're not, for me, good writing is not about trying to come up with an answer. It's trying to present all the questions. And yeah, I 100% agree with that. It feels like the internal conflict becoming external is what is very exciting about writing, can be. And I find that some uh, emerging writers they just don't push it far enough. Do you know what I mean? Like the characters are kind of all themselves, but so thinly sliced 
that they, they, I couldn't either from dialogue or from the character's behavior, or they're just kind of filling archetypical roles like mother or daughter. But what about this specific mother? What about this specific daughter? You got to go deeper than that. Um, so it's just interesting. Like sometimes it's like taking those risks. Like it could feel like a risk to make them even more specific, even more, um, cause I'm sure your characters and I know your characters from peep show, you're starting with introvert and extrovert, but they're so specific. They're so much more specific than they're not just any introvert, if, you know, like you're really getting down into specificity too. Yeah. And I think that having, having stuff made really sharpens you up because you know that if your character is archetypal mother, the actress, A, you might not be able to cast that part. And if you do, the actress might be, well, what's my thing? You have to be able to answer those questions. You have to write parts that are good enough to play for someone really talented to come and play, even if it's one scene. It's like, it demands you know, attention. Every character should have it their own inner life. Thanks for tuning in to The Screenwriting Life. We love our community and we want to get to know you even better. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash thescreenwritinglife or email us at thescreenwritinglife at gmail.com to have your question considered for the show. You can also suggest topics by emailing us there. Also, we'd love for you to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if we don't read your review on air, trust me, we have read it and not only does it mean the world to us, but it helps other people find the show. We've always been driven by mission and mentorship, and reviewing our show helps expand that mission. And of course, until next Sunday, happy writing.